So it's half past the hour here. And we will start this podcast with a brief tribute to the bells in the background. Because it's the last time you're ever going to hear them, listeners. Dominic Kramer, you are moving house away from the church tower that has haunted our recordings for the last, what, couple of years now? Yeah, every 15 minutes I have to listen to that monstrosity of a noise. And yeah, I don't think I'm going to miss them. Are you moving to a bell-free neighbourhood of Amsterdam? Yeah, I'm actually moving not so far away, but far enough away that I won't be able to hear them so prominently. I mean, I really do live underneath the church tower and it is beautiful and I will miss that. It's looking lovely on these sunny days. But every 15 minutes, it's like I worked out it's about 5% of the time the bells are actually going. You would have thought, given that two years ago you were already running a successful podcast, that maybe moving into a house next to a big bell tower wasn't the best plan. I know. I thought about it before we moved here, but it was fine. It's not been a big problem. It stopped in the night. That's the main thing. Well, goodbye, bells. I won't miss you. And Dominic definitely won't miss you. And neither will our editors, I think, um, having to cut it out or wait for us to pause recording for two minutes every 15 minutes. It's the start of a bright new bell-free era. And uh, what is coming up in this bright new bell-free era? Well, this week we're going to be speaking to a bright young person, Sophia Scarlett. She's a pretty extraordinary young Romanian woman who, while she was still at school, founded Girl Up Romania, the country's first ever gender equality organisation for teenagers. Sophia is now studying at Stanford, but she found some time between a hectic essay writing schedule to speak to us about what life is like for women and girls in Romania and what it's been like for her being a teenage activist. That's coming up later in the show, but first... Who has had a bad week, Katie? It has been a bad week for Jakub Zolczuk. He is a popular Polish author. He wrote this novel called Blinded by the Lights. It got turned into a HBO series, apparently. We should watch it. It's quite a gritty novel following the life of a drug dealer in Warsaw, uh, which apparently was influenced by his own experiences as a young man. But yeah, along with being a writer, Jakub is also, like you, Dominic, a keen follower of US politics. And much like you, last November, he found himself glued to his screen following every tiny random twist and turn of the US presidential election. And that is why, apparently, he got very cross when he saw a tweet by the Polish president, Andrzej Duda, which used some slightly wrong terminology. Duda had written in a tweet, Congratulations to Joe Biden for a successful presidential campaign. Fine. And then there was a follow-up sentence. As we await the nomination by the Electoral College... Poland is determined to upkeep high-level and high-quality Poland-US strategic partnership for an even stronger alliance. Which, you know, sounds like very standard blah-blah politician tweeting. However, there was something slightly wrong with what he said. Did you spot it as a US political nerd? You are not nominated to the Electoral College. The Electoral College nominates you? Well, they don't nominate candidates. They elect them. Is a maybe a better way of putting it. But I, I think you still more or less wondered what was wrong with it. So 10 nerd points to you. Um, so Duda definitely used the wrong lingo. And lots of people at the time interpreted this as him 
kind of hanging back and not wanting to fully endorse Biden. Duda, you might remember, was one of the European leaders who got on pretty well with that orange guy that we used to talk about quite a lot. We never talked about him. He might have cropped up a couple of times, but it's true. We tried to avoid him as much as possible. But anyway, so some people thought this was just Duda being a bit kind of shady against Biden, but other people thought it was just him not really knowing how US elections work. Jakob, in any case, was quite scornful, and he wrote a Facebook post about what Duda had said, saying, and I quote, Andre Duda is a moron. Now, that is a mean thing to write. Do you think it should be illegal? Definitely not. It definitely should not be illegal. But unfortunately for Jakob, it is illegal in Poland and he could now be facing up to three years in prison. Mm. Because Poland has some pretty well-developed laws around insults. It is a crime in Poland to insult state leaders. It is also a crime to offend religious feelings. You might remember a few weeks back there were these LGBT plus activists who were put on trial for making these posters that showed the Virgin Mary with a rainbow halo, Mm -hmm. apparently very offensive to the church. Those activists eventually got acquitted, but nonetheless, it's a sign of just how strict these rules are, that you could be put on trial for that kind of thing. Uh, And this is a separate law, the one that Jakob has been charged under, but it's part of the same set of laws that make it quite hard to insult anyone in authority in Poland. This isn't the only country in Europe that has a law like this. Wasn't there something in Spain that happened recently? We did talk about this a few weeks ago on the podcast. Pablo Hussel, that Catalan rapper who got in trouble. Yeah, that was what it was. Yeah, he got in trouble for a few different things, but one of them was insulting the monarchy, insulting the head of state. And the crazy thing is that even though quite a lot of countries around Europe have got rid of these kind of laws, because they do seem very outdated and not very democratic, it is still illegal in a bunch of European countries to insult the head of state, including Belgium, Denmark, Germany, Greece, Iceland, Italy. There's actually too many countries to name here. But Politico did a good roundup of all the places where you can go to jail for insulting the head of state. So I'll put that in the show notes. But I mean, it's just ridiculous. If it isn't illegal for me to call you, Dominic, a moron, it shouldn't be illegal to call an elected representative a moron, especially if you think they've done a bad job. I actually think maybe it should be illegal for you to call (laughs) me a moron. Do you think we should legally enforce me being nice to you on this podcast? Yes. Um, No, I mean, it clearly is ridiculous. And um, I cannot believe that so many European countries still have a law like this. It's crazy, isn't it? I mean, like, elected people should be the last people who get extra legal protection from insults. I mean, I'm obviously not encouraging people to be mean actively to each other on the internet. I think we have enough of that already. But it does seem very silly and not a good use of prosecutors' time. And also, you know, given that the EU often says judgy things about other countries not being very good at democracy, we just shouldn't have this kind of law here anymore. It's ridiculous. Surely people are mean about Duda all the time. Yeah, and actually, (laughs) in the wake of this, it's kind of ironic because more people, perhaps than ever, have been being rude about him on the internet because this whole court case against Jakob has caused a sort of groundswell of outrage on the internet about just how ridiculous it is. How's he doing? Like, it must be quite a confronting thing to think that you might end up for three years in jail for calling the president a moron. Yeah, he put out quite a bemused Facebook post about it, telling people what happened. And also one of the most surreal things about it is that he wasn't even told that he'd been charged over this. No one called him. He learned about it from a pro-government media outlet, which is interesting. I think he's been fairly philosophical about it. At the end of the post, he wrote, it's going to be okay. 
have a nice evening. And as I said, there has been this sort of like groundswell of support for him. And that's been quite nice to see. It should be said that usually in this kind of case, people don't actually go to prison. It's usually a fine or community service. And he shouldn't be even getting that, obviously. But yeah, we will be crossing our fingers for Jakob that things work out okay. What a weird story. It is a weird story. Who has had a good week? It's been a good week for the people of Povo de Varzim in Portugal after they fought back against a pretty striking case of cultural appropriation from the American designer Tory Birch. Now, Birch is, according to Forbes, the 88th most powerful woman in the world. Is she really? Yeah. I'd never heard of her, actually. Me neither. We're obviously not very fashion. <laughs> oh, no. She has apparently got 250 stores worldwide. Um, and also you can find her clothes and homeware in department stores such as Bloomingdale's and Harvey Nicks. Mm. But the big fuss is around a sweater that was listed in her 2021 spring collection. Katie, how much do you think this sweater would cost from a designer like Tory Birch? Well, I normally pay about 50 euros for a jumper, sometimes less. I don't know, 300 quid or something? You clearly aren't moving in these circles, are you, Katie? Because it's on the market for 695 euros. 700 bucks for a jumper. Yeah. And it was listed on the website as being inspired by the Mexican Baja. But when some Portuguese people were looking at photos of this sweater, they immediately saw a resemblance to a Portuguese piece of traditional clothing. I say a resemblance, but what I actually mean to say is it's pretty much identical to a piece of knitwear that has been around for more than 150 years and is traditionally worn by people in the fishing community of Povoa do Varzim. It's called a camisola povera, and whilst Birch charges nearly 700 euros for her version, you can buy them in Portugal from the locals for about 70 or 80 euros. So still a bit more than you would spend, probably, Katie, but a much better deal. Although I'm just looking at them on the internet and they are very nice. I would pay 70 euros for this very nice, warm-looking jumper, especially if it was, like, handmade. Yeah, how would you describe it, Katie? So it's a sort of cream jumper with some very fetching black and red design work. Fishing motifs, it looks like. Exactly. That's what it is. Most of the shapes refer to seafaring. And in fact, on Birch's sweater, there's a crab on the front and also a Portuguese coat of arms. And yet it was listed on the website as being inspired by Mexico. That's not very Mexican, is it? No. So cultural appropriation is one of those words that lots of people feel conflicted about. It's a divisive topic. But I think we can all agree that if you're going to make money out of a piece of traditional clothing from a part of the world that you have no connection to, then really the least you can do is correctly attribute which part of the world the design comes from. Yeah, I mean, like, steal your 700 euros from the right community, at least. Absolutely. So how have the people of Portugal reacted to this scandal? They were understandably very annoyed. There was a lot of backlash on social media against Tory Birch. And actually both the National Culture Minister and the Mayor of the city have released statements that won't have been happy reading for Tory Birch and her staff. And this isn't the first time that Tory Birch has been in such a cultural appropriation scandal. She was criticised a few years back for designing a jacket that just happened to be an almost exact copy of a Romanian jacket from the early 20th century that just so happened to be on display at the Metropolitan Museum of Art in New York at the time, which I just think is so blatant. Oh my 
God, this brand, they're like repeat offenders. I know. Back then she listed that jacket as being inspired by Africa. <laughs> and I don't know if she thought that Romania was like in Africa or maybe <laughs> the, she didn't know that one of her designers had just copied it from this Romanian jacket in the museum. Oh, man. Anyway, it's pretty clear that there's a bit of a pattern of copying designs um, within this company. Some Portuguese people on the internet have also noticed in the past few weeks that they're with some more unattributed Portuguese stuff on her website, this time crockery, that is a copy of the ceramic work of the Portuguese artist Rafael Bordalo Pinheiro. Tory, Tory, Tory. I mean, obviously it's really bad in general what she's been doing, but could she face any legal trouble for this? Like, do these kind of designs have copyright? I was afraid you were going to ask this question because it's quite difficult to answer. From what I've read, it's currently a bit of a legal grey zone but most traditional designs are in the public domain mm. the world intellectual property organization is actually working on creating some legal clarity about what counts as misuse or misappropriation around traditional cultural expressions but that seems to be quite a way off from being resolved so at the moment they just have a guide on their website for fashion designers on how to avoid the pitfalls of cultural appropriation and after reading them I thought Tori really should have a little read through of them and I thought maybe I'd even send them to her. <laughs> it's worth pointing out that obviously designers have been copying each other forever and I don't think anyone expects us to live in a world where we're not inspired by other designers and even sometimes from designs from other cultures but if you're going to do it, then do it sensitively, respectfully, with the correct recognition and with engagement with the holders of that culture. Yeah, definitely. Tori has apologised and has written messages in Portuguese and English on her Twitter account. She corrected the misattribution to Baja on the website and she said, Tori Birch stands for inclusivity and celebrating diverse cultures, which is a very nice sentiment, but... The company's history suggests that they're not always so good at distinguishing between these different cultures. African, Romanian, Mexican, <laughs> Portuguese. It's all very complicated for them. It is very complicated for their little brains. Anyway, the sweater at the centre of this route has now actually been taken down from her website. So if you want to buy one, you've got to go to the locals. And that's why I thought I'd give them a good week, because whilst I'm sure they've all had an angry few weeks seeing their traditional clothing appropriated for huge profit, they seem to have won. And the mayor of Povo de Varsim, along with the Portuguese culture minister, are considering further action against Tory Birch. And they've come up with some ideas. The mayor wants the sweater to be for sale, but wants it to be manufactured by the locals. He also wants Birch to open a craft training centre. So we'll keep an eye on whether he manages to get these rewards as compensation. Mm. By the way, thank you to our Portuguese listener, Andre, for bringing this to our attention. It's really difficult to keep a hold of all the stories happening across the entire continent, especially if we want to talk about stories that have been overlooked by the mainstream media. So please do keep your suggestions coming. If there's something you'd like to hear us chatting about from your corner of the continent, then send us an email, hello at europeanspodcast.com. Well, you and me have definitely had a good week, Dominic, in that we have yet another amazing set of generous people to thank for supporting this podcast. This week, massive thanks go to Yossi Nachemi, Zachary Whiteley, Didier Bourguignon, Jenny Vorsman, Sasha Merdad-Chafiha, 
and Fabio Caparina, who actually, this is a particularly lovely thing, Fabio, you have been gifted a donation to this podcast by your lovely friend, Berjan Eichert, to say thank you for introducing her to the show, which is an amazing thing to gift someone a donation. And we should definitely be encouraging people to do this. It's a great birthday present for the person who has everything. <laughs> Head to patreon.com forward slash Europeans podcast to donate as little as two euros a month to join our lovely gang of supporters. Or dollars or pounds. Or even Canadian dollars, I think. Multiple currencies are available. Time for this week's interview. You might remember a few months back, I briefly cheated on you, Dominic, and hosted a podcast for the United Nations. Oh, yeah. It was a very interesting conversation about intergenerational feminism in Europe. And one of the guests was the supremely articulate Sofia Scarlat. Sofia is the founder of Girl Up Romania. I think she was only about 15 when she founded it a few years ago. Girl Up is a campaign movement around the world to educate girls about their rights. And it's present in lots of different countries. But Romania has a lot of very specific issues and specific problems when it comes to girls' rights. One of them is the very high rate of teen pregnancies. Around 10% of babies in Romania are delivered to adolescent mothers. And an interlinked problem is the fact that sex education is really restricted in schools, not least because the church is a pretty powerful presence in Romania. In that vacuum of information, the Instagram account run by Sophia's group has become this really amazing source of information that a lot of girls just can't get from school. Stuff like how to protect yourself against HPV and other sexually transmitted diseases. How does sexual consent work? I mean, really, it's a public service that they're doing. But this is all just a roundabout way of saying that when I first met Sophia a few months ago, I just couldn't wait to have her on the Europeans as a guest. And we are delighted to have finally made that happen. Sophia, as Dominic says, is currently studying at Stanford University on top of all of her brilliant campaigning. So she's a very busy woman. And we are supremely grateful that she was willing to stay up at midnight California time for this rather excellent conversation that you're about to hear. I'm really curious to hear about your own journey in terms of becoming a feminist. Like when I was at high school, we didn't really talk much about feminism. I think it is a bit different now. But I'm guessing you didn't grow up in an environment where like as soon as you were born, you were completely surrounded by enlightened feminists. So it was really natural to start planning to smash the patriarchy at the age of 10 or whatever. Was there a moment or an experience that made you realize, huh, things don't really seem that equal around here? Well, I, I grew up in... Romania in a very normal Romanian family and so I, I never really had a lot of conversations about feminism growing up. It wasn't necessarily a taboo topic especially in terms of like abortion and reproductive health and rights. This was a conversation that I had with my mother early on. It didn't really get into an area of women's rights until I brought up the conversation myself. I think it mostly just became very apparent to me because of the environment that I was growing up in. I had neighbors who were victims of domestic violence. I would see, you know, domestic violence or sexual harassment on the street a lot of the time. You pick up on certain little things of just the way that people talk about women or sexual jokes that, you know, other students make in a classroom or things like this. And it's like, wow, that makes me uncomfortable. I wonder why. And I think the internet really helped in a lot of different ways because it just moved me from this environment back at home in Romania into an environment where, you know, there's all these other people from around the world who are experiencing the same thing. 
and they're all tracing it back to this one thing, which is like sexism and gender inequality. And like, wow, I, I want to learn more about that. What is that? But I quickly realized, though, that the conversations that people were having around gender equality on a global scale were very different from what I was noticing back at home. And this is sort of the issue that I encountered. And the reason why I started my organization in the first place is because I felt like, yes, people are learning more about equality and about gender equality and about how women are affected by violence, but they're not really applying it into a Romanian context. And there's no like cultural awareness and there's no like shaping this notion of feminism to match our identity and the environment that we're living in. And so that's where sort of my project came in is just me trying to adapt what I was learning to my environment. And what are some of the things that make being a woman or a girl in Romania unique to Romania? I think on one hand, we have to keep in mind the effect of Ceausescu's like reign on Romania and the effect of the ban on abortion and contraception and divorce, the way that women were talked about during the time period, the way that women were seen, their contribution to society, the way that people sort of understood the access that they had to women and to their bodies. Also, just the way that women's bodies were mobilized into a tool for the state. And I think that really had a, a long lasting impact on the generations of women that came after. And so our conversations around those things are very different. Also, just because it is Eastern Europe. And I think generally, you know, when you talk about Europe, people sort of think of like France or the UK or other parts of Western Europe. But Eastern Europe is a, a completely different story and it's a completely different environment. People have very different issues. I was born in Bucharest in the capital city, but I moved outside of the city into a village when I started school. And so I saw a lot of cases of human trafficking there and after having multiple conversations around trafficking with people in Romania, that there's very, very many parts of the country where this is completely normal because women and girls just don't have any other opportunities after they graduate from high school. It's just kind of known, okay, I finished school. I'm going to go into this line of work. It's okay to go into sex work, but it's not okay to go into that area because of the society that uh, people have built. And it's not okay to go into it because these are the expectations and because there's no other opportunities available for women and girls. One of the debates that's been going on recently is this huge debate uh, in Romania about whether or not mandatory sex education should be introduced into schools. And there's been a lot of resistance to it. From the outside, it seems like sex education might be a good idea. There's really high levels of teen pregnancy in Romania, one of the highest rates in the EU, I think. It feels like sex education might help fix that. So why is there so much resistance to it? There's definitely some valid uh, perspectives on both sides. I'm somebody who strongly supports access to sexual education in Romania, and I understand the need for it. But I think on the other hand, I understand why there's certain opposition. I had some access to sexual education in Romania, and I know that the courses that we got were not built correctly. And they didn't focus on what sex education should actually mean. To give you an example, you'd have like maybe five classes over the course of like a semester and they would just be referring to sexually transmitted diseases. And that's important, but that's not sex ed entirely. You need to talk about consent and you need to talk about um, sexual orientation. You need to talk about body image and all these other things which fall under the category of sexual education, but which Romanian people don't really know fall under that category. I think this is where a lot of the opposition comes in from. 
is people think that if we allow for sex ed to be available in schools, that it's not going to be taught properly, which is a valid concern. But then on the other hand, people are also concerned because they have a very flawed understanding of what sex ed is in the first place. We get a lot of backlash from politicians who say that our intent as an organization is to brainwash children and to take away their innocence and that we're promoting these ideas that would strip a child of what makes them a child. The truth is that it is so, so important that you have people who are there to talk about these things in a way that is open and honest and that is well-informed um, and that you have somebody who knows how to talk about consent as opposed to them just learning it from like a Netflix show or something. There's definitely a lot of debate around this area and I don't think that it's going to be clarified anytime soon. We thought that we would sort of have sex ed available in schools starting this year, but now we're really seeing that it's not going to be like that. And I, I'm I'm wondering how long this conversation and this back and forth is going to go on for because it seems that it's really been going on for decades now. What was it like for you when you were a teenager and you started bringing up some of these topics, that some of which are controversial to talk about? How did your classmates respond? How did your teachers respond? I generally had a, a pretty supportive environment. Obviously, there's always people who are going to sort of poke fun at initiatives like this. It's interesting to me because I went into this organization and I started it as a, a teenager, obviously not knowing anything that I was doing, but I, I just assumed that, you know, this is a conversation that I can have. And if I, as a 15 year old, don't feel embarrassed talking about like street harassment, because it just seems like an issue that everybody would agree upon, then why am I getting all of this hate? But as the organization grew, we, we got a lot more backlash and I think the environment got a lot more hostile. Um, so there were a lot of moments where I was like, I'm not entirely sure if like this is something that I can continue doing if I don't take care of myself properly. I sort of learned to look at it as like my struggles in doing this work are will, will never be as like as important to acknowledge as the struggles of the people that I'm helping. And so um, I've just learned to prioritize it that way. I'm also really interested in all of this controversy over gender studies, which is something that we've seen in a couple of other European countries like Hungary and Poland. Our producer, Andre, was telling us that last year, the Romanian parliament adopted this law that banned any discussion of gender identity other than biological sex in the educational system. And the law eventually got scrapped by the constitutional court. But it is still kind of alarming that it happened in the first place. What's going on there? Like, Why are these politicians so scared of gender studies as a subject? There's multiple things that are threatening, but I think the main thing is just that it opens up a conversation which Romanian people have been avoiding for a really long time. People are scared of change and they're scared of going, you know, beyond the surface of what gender inequality is looked at as being or what feminism is perceived as being. And it's going to the very root of the problem, which is gender roles in society and the way that women are, are perceived and the dynamics between men and women. And also just the idea that gender equality isn't necessarily about women being equal to men, but it's about both men and women surpassing the notion of gender and of reaching this point where we all sort of pursue our own, our own interests and needs and wants, not just based off of like these social constructs. But it's a scary thought. And Romania has barely even started to talk about you know, what we dealt with under the so-called communist regime. There's a lot of intergenerational trauma and there's a lot of things that people aren't ready to talk about. And gender is one of those things. I think in that case in particular, the person who initiated the law 
He said that he had studied in the United States and when he came back to Romania, he was so alarmed because he noticed this discussion around, especially the LGBTQ community and around transgender individuals. And he was terrified that this might come to Romania as if we don't have these things in Romania already because LGBTQ people have existed since the beginning of time. But he mainly just wanted to sort of stop that dialogue. And I think that that's incredibly terrifying that we have these people who have this massive influence on the country and who are able to just completely stop a discussion like this from happening. Thankfully, the law didn't end up going into effect. But the fact that it even got to a point where it could have been signed into law is very scary. But as a side note, the the person who initiated the law was actually the guy who like went in parliament and he named our organization as like one of the main threats to the children of Romania. And he said that we're like indoctrinating people. Very funny video to watch. Some good free advertising for you there. Yes. <laughs> yeah. Who knew that teenage girls could be so dangerous <laughs> society? Um, are you hopeful that your generation are seeing the problems for women and girls in society and that your generation will go on to change things? I, I can't be too hopeful because I understand that Romanian teenagers are this weird combination between people who are very progressive in their ideas compared to the rest of the country. But then you have the complete opposite and you have people who reinforce these stereotypes and these gender roles and they're part of the same generation and there's no in between. Um, and so it's very interesting to sort of see how these different mindsets came to be, even though we all sort of got very similar education and we all sort of had the same experiences growing up. One thing that stands out with my generation is that we're willing to talk and that's something that's pretty new. We're willing to have these conversations and we're willing to argue and to debate and to send each other links and articles and videos and to just be like, hey, like this is my perspective um, and this is why I believe in this and I want you to sort of educate yourself. And I don't mean that in a patronizing way, but I just mean that as like, we're the future voters and politicians and police officers of this country. And we really need to equip ourselves with the resources that we need so that we don't make the same mistakes as like our parents did. I can highly recommend that you should all go and listen to Sophia's brilliant TED Talk from a few years ago called When Subjectivity Ends, Teen Activism Begins. We'll put a link in the show notes to that. You should also check out uh, Girl Up Romania's really fantastic Instagram account. It is chock full of great information in Romanian and in English. You can find it at girlup.romania and we'll whack a link to that in the show notes too. busy week for you what with moving house and everything have you managed to squeeze in any tv or podcasts yeah i've actually been listening to quite a few podcasts while i've been packing the many many boxes we have a ridiculous number of boxes i just don't understand how it's happened anyway one of the podcasts i've really enjoyed this week was a podcast from a little known outlet called the new york times <laughs> oh yeah those guys it was on the dailies feed last sunday and it was a readout of a long read from 2019 about this dutch guy an art dealer from a family of amsterdam art world aristocracy who discovered the first new Rembrandt in over 40 years back in 2018 and then claimed to have found another 
soon after. It's really an amazing and weird story about this guy, Jan, and his ancestors, who were also all called Jan Six, going back to the original Jan Six, who was actually a friend of Rembrandt and whose portrait by Rembrandt is one of the Dutch master's most celebrated paintings. It's about an hour's listen, but it's really worth it. The article was written a few years ago, but it's still absolutely fascinating. Intriguing. I will check that out. What have you been enjoying? I've got a bit of a rogue entry for Isolation Inspiration this week. Last week, I went quite old school and recommended a book from 1956. So this week, I thought I'd do something quite young and modern and recommend some French TikTok accounts that I've been really enjoying. Oh, stop it. (laughs) Hashtag trendy. So I'm going to recommend you three different ones. Uh, The first one I think can be enjoyed even if you really don't speak French. And it's this guy who acts out all of these little comedy scenes of people who work in different shops. So there's one where he plays a shop assistant in Zara and he's really passive aggressive. And then he does another one where he's like a distracted bakery worker. Bonjour. Bonjour. Je vais vous prendre une demi-baguette, s'il vous plaît. Ouais, ce sera tout. Oui, ce sera tout. And uh, he also does one where he's a checkout assistant in Lidl and he's just like flinging the items really violently down the conveyor belt. They're just this really weirdly well-observed little comedy nuggets. I've been really enjoying them. That one is an account called Lulu Casquip. I'll put all of these links in the show notes. The second account I wanted to recommend is for French learners, because I know lots of you are learning second or third languages, including French. So I thought it was worth mentioning. And it's a school teacher. I think she teaches really quite small kids uh, called Maîtresse Adeline. And she does these little grammar lessons on TikTok. And she's got really calm voice and really nice handwriting which i think will make your french learning like much more relaxing dans une main je tiens un verre de terre et dans l'autre un verre d'eau je les lâche les verres tombent comment écrire vert ici so that's maîtresse adeline oh i haven't thought about the tiktok language learning scene yeah there's probably a dutch one too you should check it out Uh, And finally, I thought I'd recommend an account that is comedy about languages, since so many language nerds listen to this podcast. And it's this guy called Loïc Superville, who I think is French, but grew up in America. And he does these little comedy skits about how ridiculous languages are sometimes. Conjugating. All right, English, how about you start with the verb do? Yeah, how about uh, do, doing, done, did? Perfect. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Makes so much more sense. All right, French, how about you? Yes. Okay, so... The verb faire, yes, contextualized in time. Okay, easy, easy, easy. Um, so faire, obviously. Right. Uh, fait with an S. Fait with a T. Faisons. Fait. Font. A fait with an S. A fait with no S. This isn't helping my strongly held belief that I should resist TikTok. You're making it sound very appealing. Don't resist it. It's it's great because there's no like angry stuff on it. It's all just cooking and dance videos. Katie, do you remember our TikTok segments on Good Week, Bad Week over the last few months? That's true. There is quite a lot of bleak stuff out there. But there's also just so much like nice, easy distraction. I've been really enjoying wasting time on this app. Um, And actually, I would love to waste even more time on this app. So if you have got any favorite accounts from other European countries, particularly comedy ones, let me know. I was thinking I could curate a list of Europe's finest TikToks. That does sound quite fun. Oh, I'm going to succumb. Let's all waste our time.
My happy ending this week comes from Rome, where there is some celebration after the iconic white-gloved traffic cops are back in Piazza Venezia. You may or may not know what I'm talking about, but it's that incredibly busy square in Rome where traffic rather chaotically emerges from three different directions and a police officer stands on a podium in the middle directing or conducting the traffic around. The podium had been down and unused for a year due to roadworks. Its return seems to have made the people of Rome quite happy in itself, but there is extra happiness because for the first time ever there is now a female Female traffic controller. Christina Corbucci is the first woman to get this job, a job which has been around since 1920. And Christina took lessons from a guy who is known as the Maestro, who's been working on the podium since 2004. I personally think it sounds like an awful job with cars coming at you from all directions, and I would be terrified. But I'm very happy that that glass ceiling of traffic controlling in Rome has been broken. That's crazy that it's taken that long, given that. You know, it's not like a job that in any way couldn't be done by a woman. Maybe no women wanted to do it. <laughs> People have been staying away. But it is very good news for her, so I'm happy about that. Me too. That's all we've got time for this week. I've got to go and move house. But before we go, big thanks to our producers, Katz Laszlo, Priyanka Shankar and Andre Popovicu. This podcast is part of the Are We Europe family. They are a podcasting collective of like-minded European podcasts. If you're a fan of border-breaking journalism, you can find more of their stuff at areweeurope.com. If you miss us between episodes, then come find us on social media. We are on Twitter at Europeans Pod, Instagram, Europeans Podcast, Facebook, The Europeans Podcast, or on our email, hello at europeanspodcast.com. I love how you include that as social media. <laughs> Keeping it old school. Bye, everyone. Hasta la próxima. <laughs>